If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 with me. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. The title of this message is The Gospel Mission of Jesus. Uh, I think in a moment in our culture when many groups uh, want to arrest Jesus to their own agenda, whether that be to promote something like a social gospel or a prosperity gospel or an easy believism gospel or a works-based gospel, all of which are not the gospel. What we rehearsed this morning from God's word reminds us of the true reason why Jesus came, the true reason why he stepped down from his place in heaven and took on human flesh, the reason for the incarnation. And we're going to see that true reason or the gospel mission of Jesus by looking at a calling of a disciple to Jesus' gospel mission there in verse 9, and then by observing a clarification to Jesus' gospel mission in verses 10 through 13. And after having gone through the text and worked through the text, then we're going to come back and just note a few things. We're just going to highlight a few things, some teaching points from these verses. Okay, that's the direction that we're going to head this morning. Well, we see immediately in our text this calling of a particular disciple. And that disciple is none other than the human author of the book that we've been expounding, namely the man called Matthew. So let's look there first in verse 9. The text reads, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. In this verse, we see the words that Jesus passed on from where he was in his hometown. Uh, This comes right on the heels of what Matthew recorded in the previous section that we looked at. We saw there Jesus doing ministry in his own city. If you look back at verse 1, you'll see that he's in his own city. And, And the particular ministry event that Matthew highlights as Jesus went into his city was the healing of the paralytic. That story taught us that the same one who has authority and power over the storms And the demons is the same one who has authority over the forgiveness of sins. And in the case of the paralytic who was suffering paralysis due to, directly to his personal sins, Jesus exercises authority over that man's suffering by not only forgiving his sins, but also freeing him from his paralysis. What we said last week was that this event and the ministry of Jesus teaches us about the sovereignty of Jesus over healing and forgiveness. Uh, Jesus has the authority to heal somebody in conjunction with the forgiveness of their sins if he so chooses. Um, He did that in the life of the the paralytic man. But uh, the Lord Jesus is not obligated to heal somebody who comes to him for salvation, nor is he obligated to heal somebody who has already been saved. Um, The Apostle Paul himself is an example of this, right? He he asked the Lord three times to have his affliction 
removed and the Lord said to Paul essentially, no, my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. That the Lord wanted to put on display in the life of the Apostle Paul his power, the power in particular of his grace to get him through the trial, uh, but also to keep him humble in the midst of his ministry. The Lord had a purpose in the life of the Apostle Paul. And what we said last week is that the real issue that we have as human beings, the fundamental problem in our lives is our sin debt that we owe God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. What we need is forgiveness, and that need is solved for the man that we are looking at today here in verse 9. As we look back at, at that verse, we see that Jesus saw this man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Uh, Matthew is the name that Matthew wishes to designate for himself. And um, how, how profound that I observed that, right? Matthew calls himself Matthew. Okay. Um, but when we compare this account uh, in Matthew to Mark and Luke, those two gospel writers have the name Levi. Um, now, before we get, I think, unduly nervous and think that this is some kind of contradiction in the Bible, we, we need to simply realize that it was not uncommon for a person in uh, of Jewish ethnicity to have a, a dual Semitic name. Furthermore, if, if Matthew's name choice follows the same pattern of Peter, then his being called Matthew could be the result of Jesus giving him a new name. Uh, remember how Jesus gave Cephas the name Peter? right? It's possible that Jesus also gave Levi the name Matthew. Now, we don't know that for sure. It's a, it's a possibility, but certainly no reason to charge God's word with inconsistency because gospel writers have different names for this person. Now, whatever the reason for the two names, Matthew chose to designate himself, uh, himself as Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh or, or gift of God. A particularly appropriate name, says one commentator, for a tax collector graciously chosen for discipleship. We know that Matthew was a gracious gift of Yahweh because his testimony gives evidence of God's grace in saving sinners and calling them to discipleship. Matthew, in fact, was a sinner in need of God's grace. We read that he was at a tax booth when Jesus called him. Tax booth is Tolonion in the Greek, and it refers to an office where taxes were paid. Uh, Matthew would punch his time clock and go sit in one of these offices and collect taxes from people. So he was a, a tax collector by occupation. Now, I think it's safe to say that in our day that we don't really get all warm and fuzzy when we think about taxes, right? We're not saying, mm, I just love those property taxes. Uh, could I get some more of that state tax, please? No, we don't really do that. Matter of fact, the Jews in Jesus' day had way more of a visceral response to taxes. In particular was their disdain for tax collectors. Uh, Charles Quarles in his commentary on Matthew has a description of the likes of Matthew, the tax collector. We're going to quote this at length. 
Quote, his was a despised occupation since tax collectors were viewed as traitors who allied themselves with Roman enemy for the sake of monetary gain. Tax collectors were notorious for inventing new taxes on the spot so they could increase their profits. The Talmud repeatedly refers to tax collectors who were subject to no limits, meaning that they did not feel restricted to collect only the tax that was actually due, but typically demanded far more. Tax collectors were so notoriously dishonest that they were not generally qualified to serve as witnesses. The Talmud compared an encounter with a tax collector to meeting a bear face to face. One rarely left the encounter unharmed. Beggars were not permitted to accept contributions from tax collectors because it was assumed that their money had been stolen from others. Tax collectors were ritually unclean because of their frequent interactions with Gentiles. If a tax collector stepped into a Jewish home, the house and everything in it was defiled. This description teaches us that under the surface of this tax collector, betrayer, Matthew, was a heart of covetousness. A heart that loved money and gained it through dishonest means. The scripture condemns this person as untrustworthy, covetous, greedy, a liar, deceitful, and additionally an idolater because as Paul says, coveting is idolatry. This is who Matthew is. Or should I say, this is who Matthew was. That's who he was when Jesus came to him. But when Matthew responded to the call of Jesus, follow me, he became somebody different. Matthew awoke that morning a tax collector and ended the day a disciple of Christ. Matthew's testimony goes to show that following Christ can involve such a radical shift in lifestyle that an occupation must be abandoned. If we were thinking of examples in our day, someone working maybe in the pornographic industry could no longer hold that occupation as a follower of Christ. An abortionist must abandon his murderous lifestyle. An employee of a cult organization or a heretical religious establishment can no longer maintain gainful employment there. As I was preparing for this message, I thought of the story of a man by the name of Costi Hinn. Uh, Costi is the nephew and former assistant to Benny Hinn, the, the false teacher of a wealth, health, and prosperity gospel. Costi himself accounts his lifestyle before coming to Christ. He said, quote, growing up in the Hinn family, empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Hinn said that having encountered the truth of God's word, quote, I wept bitterly over my participation in greedy ministry manipulation and my life of false teaching and beliefs. And I thanked God for his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. My eyes were completely open. The journey away from the prosperity gospel was not easy. He said in his book on God Green and the prosperity gospel, quote, next thing my wife and I knew we were living two miles from church and though it was no prosperity gospel lifestyle it was our life 
I had gone from living in nearly 10,000 square feet to living in 600 square feet. From driving a Hummer to driving a Chrysler to driving a Kia to riding my bike because my wife needed the car to go to work. From shopping Versace to scouring Marshalls. As I read some of the parts of Costi's testimony, I couldn't detect a singular point in his life when his conversion happened. It seemed like there were multiple circumstances that surrounded his conversion to Christ, but one thing is absolutely sure in reading his testimony. He knew that to embrace a biblical gospel meant he had to turn and burn his ships that led back to the prosperity gospel. To follow Christ represented an abandonment of his former occupation. I think this is just like the testimony of Matthew, and I think it represents those testimonies where coming to Christ in repentant faith demands the abandonment of one's occupation. Now, these stories are in a category to their own. I think that we need to be honest about that. Not everyone in becoming or being a faithful follower of Christ must walk away from their occupation, right? Their occupation is not a sinful occupation. They can stay in it. Uh, But what about a, a... Uh, working for a certain company, maybe. Uh, It's not the occupation that you have, but the place you work, and that certain company is saying that if you're going to work for our company, then you have to sin in order to continue to work for it. I think wisdom is needed here, right? But obviously, a simple principle would be that if your company is wanting you to use your God-given skills to personally sin, and perhaps you've respectfully... Uh, appeal to management to reverse what they're asking you to do, then you cannot work for that company anymore. Uh, what your job has done in your life is put two options before you, it seems. is One is commit sin for the company, or two, follow Christ in obedience to righteousness and leave the company. Um, the prophet Daniel had two similar options before him in, in one occasion. You'll remember the, the prophet Daniel and some of the circumstances that were presented before him. As the story went, for Daniel, it was illegal in all the land of Babylon he was living in to pray to anybody uh, other than King Darius. Daniel, fearing, though the one living in true God, went in his room, opened up his windows, got down on his knees three times daily, and prayed to Yahweh, which was the custom of his, his life. He obeyed God rather than man. Uh, Take also the example of Peter and John in Acts. They're arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, The authorities charge them to no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. But, But fearing God rather than man, they go on preaching the gospel, for to do otherwise would be sin. I think these examples show two, two options before God's people at times. One, listening to those who are in charge, um and sinning, or two, obeying God and suffering whatever consequences come. I believe that there's an application here for a job. If a company is wanting a Christian to personally sin, then a Christian cannot work for that company anymore. Uh, Following Christ as his disciple takes precedent over following orders to sin. Uh, Matthew is an example of one whose current work had to be abandoned to follow Christ. He's an example of the calling of a disciple to Jesus' gospel mission, which we see from verse 9. And then in verses 10 through 13, we we turn from that example of Matthew to a clarification of Jesus' gospel mission. In other words, we're going to rehearse from these verses the reason 
why Jesus came into the world. So as we pick that up there in verse 10, um, we read about Jesus and his disciples going to somebody's home for a meal. And I think we're, the, we're right in understanding, just based on Luke's account of this story, that the home they go to is none other than the home of Matthew. Uh, it seems that after becoming a disciple of Christ, Matthew invites Jesus and the disciples to come and enjoy a meal at his home. Uh, we read there in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, now the picture here is, is multiple people gathered around a table uh, with food placed on the table. And of course, we read that they're reclining and um, don't make a mistake here and think that they're in lazy boys uh, in recliners seated around uh, the, the table here. No, reclining was this idea that people were uh, laying on their sides, positioned diagonally around a table. Okay? And they would pick the food and, and eat it with one of their hands uh, while they're laying down and, and of course, conversing with, with people around them. Um, that was the picture, that is the picture that we have here. And it was a setting, actually, for friends, right? Um, but did you notice in that verse that there are other guests there that are with Jesus and the disciples? Matthew accounts that, quote, many tax collectors and sinners uh, were there as well. Uh, Jesus then is seen here dining with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with the outcast of society, those that are on the outside of the religious community. Uh, of the tax collectors, which we've already talked about, are placed here with the addition of sinners, showing the close relationship between the two. But the two terms together clarify the spiritual status of the people Jesus is eating with here. These, these people are at odds with God. Uh, yes, they are considered by the religious community to be unobservant of the law, and those who reject traditional Jewish teaching, commentators will make note of this uh, in their commentaries, but, but more than being ostracized by their society is the more important fact that these people are spiritually bankrupt before God. Uh, they are sinners. And Jesus is having a meal with them. We remember how we saw, like in the previous context that we were looking at, some opposition to Jesus' ministry. Y'all remember how we saw some opposition there? Um, Well, that's going to happen again here. Verse 11 tells us that when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, To put it mildly, the Pharisees don't like what Jesus is, is doing here. Uh, And, you know, I find it kind of noteworthy that the Pharisees here have a problem with something that Jesus is doing, uh, but they don't have the fortitude to approach Jesus directly. Uh, Instead, they're kind of sniping from the sidelines, as it were. They say to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which, by the way, is not a genuine question, but it's meant to be critical. Uh, They are essentially saying Jesus should not be doing this well Jesus hears what they're saying and instead of leaving it up to his disciples to answer he takes the initiative verse 12 and he says but when he heard it he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous 
but sinners. Um, these words here by Jesus, they accomplish a lot of things. To the Pharisees, they serve as a scathing rebuke. Uh, in verse 13, Jesus effectively exposes their lack of a true understanding of the word of God. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's saying here to the Pharisees who prided themselves in being experts in God's word, you don't understand a rudimentary truth of, of scripture. God's word and his desire for his people is that they be people of mercy. If sacrificial and ritual are all they care about and they have no love in their hearts or mercy towards sinners, they have missed the very heart of God. I think we could say it this way that, you know, maybe a person may be faithful at a number of external things, church attendance, singing, communion, giving, prayer, which, by the way, all of these things the Scripture says are things that God's people must do. They are the means by which we are sanctified in the faith. So these are good things, but it's possible that to do all those things without a heart of mercy. It's possible to do those things without a heart of love, and in particular, a heart for lost sinners. Um, that is how Jesus applies that verse in Hosea to his own mission when he says at the end of verse 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has mercy for sinners. But notice that he says, For I came not to call the righteous. This means the self-righteous. This is the holier-than-thou person who doesn't think that he needs saving. Um, the person who's like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who said, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this task, tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe, tithes of all that I get. Um, Jesus isn't associating with those people because they don't want him. He is a savior of those who have come to the knowledge that they need a savior. And all of this goes to show that the gospel mission of Jesus is to call sinners to salvation. At the birth of our Lord, Matthew recorded that his name should be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. The apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John affirmed similarly in John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came on a rescue mission from heaven to seek and to save that which is lost. That is the gospel mission of Jesus. Now stepping back, and we're going to look at the whole of our passage this morning, I just want to highlight three things. Three things. One is, when we get saved, we come to Christ in need of salvation from our sins. We are sinners when we come to Christ. We aren't righteous when we come to Christ. We don't bring our supposed good deeds to him and say, Jesus, you should save me because of these. 
Matter of fact, anyone who comes to Christ and presumes to pass off their works to him as good will only hear from him what the scripture has already said, and that is that no man's works are good before getting saved. They are as filthy rags as Isaiah says. They are, as Paul said when he said, no one is good, no, not even one. So in no way do we contribute any works to our salvation. In truth, as Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But another thing we learn is that salvation is coupled with a call to discipleship. We've clearly seen this already in the Gospel of Matthew, and we see it here in the example of Matthew's calling. Salvation is coupled with a call to discipleship. It's not like God says, come get salvation, come to Jesus as Savior, but commit to discipleship at some later date. It's not the way that the the gospel message is preached as we read about it in the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is that we repent of sin and place our faith in Christ. And, And when we come to Christ, we're not only getting salvation, but we're also committing to him as disciples. That's what it was for Matthew, and that's the way that it is for everybody. The call to salvation is a call to discipleship, but what it isn't is a call to immediately become perfect in your actions. Uh, we, we believe and we teach here, and we believe the Bible teaches that we are progressively sanctified, right? We get saved, and then we continue to be about the business of becoming more like Christ throughout our life. So we, we aren't perfect. No child of God that is still breathing is perfect in his practice, Um, What he is perfect in is the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ, and that's it. He's perfect in his standing before God, but not perfect in his actions for God. He still needs sanctification. He still needs his activity to match his identity, his practice to match his position. So what is undoubtedly true about a Christian, he is no longer who he once was, but he is not yet who he should be. John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace, he said it this way. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. A Christian is no longer who they once were, but they are not yet what they should be. So those are a couple of things just to reinforce from from this passage. But there's one thing that struck me as as particularly significant to this pericope that we've been looking at right here. And, um, and it has to do with Jesus' association with sinners. Now, I've noticed in Christian circles a misuse of this passage that justifies all participation in activities with unbelievers because, after all, they say Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. You heard that before? Something like that. And I want to say, yes, he did. That's true, but there is a very important qualification to observe here, and that is that uh, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners to call them away from their sin, not to affirm them in their sin. Uh, Matter of fact, the saying of Jesus in Luke goes uh, like this, and I thought I had it here, but but I don't. Um, It says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, and then Luke has two repentance, all right? 
Um, I think Luke makes explicit what Matthew assumes. The mission of Jesus is to call sinners to repentance. So the reason Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners was to give them the gospel. And I think that needs to be our purpose as well, to share the gospel with unbelievers so they might get saved. That's our ultimate hope in hanging out with unbelievers. But I do think there's some wisdom here. Uh, We have to be wise in how we do that. Uh, We don't associate with unbelievers undiscerningly. Uh, Remember, Psalm 1 tells us that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, the Apostle Paul said um, there in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company ruins good morals, right? You have to make sure that we aren't influenced by evil in our association with unbelievers. We also have to be sure that our involvement with unbelievers doesn't implicate us in their sin or involve us directly in their sin. Now, on the flip side, we, we can't be so cautious that we isolate ourselves like, like hermits, Right? Um, I found this quote to be helpful in striking a, a pretty good balance on these things. David Turner, in his commentary, says this. He says, Association with unbelievers must be handled with wisdom so that ethical compromise is avoided. But fear of such compromise cannot become an excuse for isolation from those who most need the message of the kingdom. We have to be wise in our association with unbelievers. We can't associate with them in any way that would cause us to compromise our Christian faith. And I think that there's an example of this with the church that was in Corinth, by the way. If we just give a biblical example of this. There were Christians in that church who were going to the local temple and associating with the pagans who were performing rituals to idols there. Uh, They would go there and eat the food offered to an idol and be present as the celebration of the pagan god was taking place. Uh, It was a kind of participation in idol worship. And Paul said in strong words that a Christian could not do that. Uh, He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 21, that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now there's a, a lot of context to what Paul says here, and he was particularly concerned that mature Christians in Corinth didn't create a stumbling block for baby Christians who got saved out of idol worship. But the point remains that the Corinthians were not to associate with unbelievers in the act of pagan sacrifice. They were to not eat that meat while it was being offered to a false god. And because that led to participation with the demonic realm, it led to to compromise. And I think that the principle remains for us today. We, we must not associate with unbelievers in a way that will cause us to actually participate in their sin, to compromise our Christian faith. Uh, the Lord Jesus modeled for us what this look like. It looks like. He, he did not spend time with tax collectors and sinners so as to affirm their lifestyle or be a participant in their sin. And just to kind of just you know envision, envision what this might look like, we don't see Jesus ever holding a money bag for the tax collectors that fraudulent money went into, Right? Um, we, we don't see him posted up at the tax booth with Matthew telling him, keep doing what you're doing. Now, that seems like a very like, far end of the spectrum over here kind of thing. But obviously, Jesus was wise in the way that he handled and the way that he associated with unbelievers, with sinful people. 
But what we do see him doing is associating with unbelievers for the purpose of calling them to repentance. He said, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, I want to remind us this morning from this passage that we do have a responsibility in the world in which God has placed us. We look back in the Sermon on the Mount and the text says that we are salt and light. And who are we to be salt and light before other than people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? We are the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the salt of the earth. And when we get around unbelievers, the purpose of the Lord for us is that we might influence them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might put before them the message that saves sinners from their sins. Amen? I mean, yes, we gather together as the body of Christ, and that's who we are today. We are a called-out body of believers. We've all been saved, and we're here to worship the one living and true God. But as we scatter and leave this place, and we go to the places that God has called us to go to, we have a responsibility to be light, to be salt, and to be around unbelievers so that we might give them the gospel. And I bet that if we all went around this morning and talked about our own personal testimonies, which we could do if y'all want to do that, we might be here for a couple hours. But I think what we would hear is that somebody came into our lives and told us the gospel. Somebody told us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in hearing the gospel, the Lord by his grace drew us to himself. 1 Corinthians 6 is a good reminder here. Paul told the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians 6 that such were some of you after having listed a litany of different sins. But Paul says you're no longer who you once were. You've been saved. You've been justified and sanctified. That's no longer who we are as sinful people, but we must go out to the sinner and give the gospel to them and be used by God, hopefully, to bring them into the kingdom. That's one of our purposes here on this earth. That's how we partner with the gospel mission of Jesus. Amen.